Listener supported. WNYC Studios. You wake up in the morning, and then what happens? <laughs> oh, put your headphones on, Peter. Uh-uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Come on, put your arms around. <laughs> I want to hug you and hug you and hug you some more. Right through all these microphone cables. Go ahead. I know I'm in the right time, in the right space. Do you feel that? I'm Helga Davis. So here I was, this kid from the South Bronx, well, Harlem in the South Bronx, and I end up in this private school on Manhattan's Upper West Side. And if you can imagine it, I felt completely at home. I felt like I had found my people. And I found a lot of my people in that drama department at the Walden School. And one of the people who was in that drama department was Kenneth Lonergan. So you probably know him more as a filmmaker and as a playwright. But for me, he was Kenny. He was Mr. Peachum. <laughs> he was my husband. He, I was Mrs. Peachum, and he was Mr. Peachum in Three Penny Opera. And that experience and my experience with him and uh, Matthew Broderick was also in, in Kenny's class. That was the beginning of my understanding of who I was when I looked in the mirror. This is my conversation with Kenneth Lonergan. So there we were in this school um, doing a lot of very incredible things for people who were 14 and 15 and 16. But how long, how long were you in Walden? I was there from the time I was five, four or five. So you were one of those kids. Yeah, yeah. I went to a, some nursery school somewhere, I think on 86th Street, like a half-day school. And then I think I went to Walden either in the threes or the fours. I'm not sure. I, wow. And then all the way. And then I graduated high school there. Wow. So I really grew up there. You sure did. So you had people with whom you were classmates from the time yeah. you were three or four or five or whatever yep. you got there? Yeah. I'm still friends with uh, a friend who you didn't know who named Jane Ziegelman, who's a writer and a food person, historian and expert. And so, and uh, she and I are still friendly and uh, we were very good friends, but she left Walden when, uh, in eighth grade. So I don't, I don't think there's anyone I'm still in touch with from when I was five. But every once in a while, I'll run into somebody in the street. Uh, and I'm still friends with Matthew Broderick, who we both were friends with in high school. Um, I met him in 10th grade. And uh, I haven't seen anyone but you from Walden for a while. But David Tanzer was another one who was there from zero to the end. And so Evan Lasuk also and uh, Mark Lieberman and uh, oh, Susan Pinkwater. Uh, I think she came a little later. I don't think she was there in nursery school. Mm-hmm. Susan Klein was. Uh, Jane sent me a picture of my of our fours class. I'm pretty sure it was, and I could name everyone in the picture, which I can't do with any group since. Since uh, well, I can name most people. I can. You can name the people in your class, probably. Yeah. Well, I, but you know, you're, I don't know anyone's name if I met them after I was 25 or so. <laughs> <laughs> but anything before 25, I usually know the first name and the last name. It's amazing. 
What do you think it was about that place? It's also a very special memory for me, too. I had been in public school up until then, although I was in these IGC classes, uh, the, the intellectually gifted children. And it was a little bit like being, well, prison language isn't quite the right language for it, no. but in a sense, it is because we were taken out of the general population yeah. of the school, and then we were put in these classes, and I was with the same kids all day for seventh and eighth grade. Yeah. And How big very was the group? Mm, 20 people, yeah. just like my class yeah. at, at, Walden, at Walden, except that there were however many, there were 2,000 other kids yeah. around that we never associated with. Right. And so we were together, we learned different things, we got taken on trips that other kids didn't get taken on. Uh, and then I went and I took these exams and I was given a scholarship by uh, an institution called A Better Chance. Mm-hmm. And I remember that Walden School interview. You know, you would go to all these schools. So I visited uh, Choate mm-hmm. and Hotchkiss. Mm-hmm. And they had to pick you. Yeah. Which is a whole other (laughs) mind fuck because that's what it is because you go and like how do you how do you present yourself right so they they want you what are you 12 13 yeah yeah and when i got to walden sylvia hall gave me a tour of the school i shadowed her Mm -hmm. all day and then uh, Dan, I was in Dan's office, and we had the talk, yeah. and he was just kind of asking me about myself, yeah. right? Dan Hill. And then at the end, he asked me, what's the hardest part of all of this going to places and talking to people? And I said, you never know why they want you or they don't want you or what you could have done better. And... I just want to go to school. Yeah. And he looked at me and he said, Helga Davis, welcome to the Walden School. Oh, it's such a nice and story. That was the <laughs> end of all that bullshit. Oh, God. And the next year I came to Walden. And so I got to this school and I was saying to someone the other day that what the reason that I loved those years so much and that I cherish them is that I felt like I became Helga in those years, right? So yeah. my trip from the South Bronx to school every day was a long trip. Yeah. But once I got in those doors, I didn't feel any differently than anyone else. I felt that the same things were expected of me that were expected of you. Um, I felt that I was free to express myself in a way that I wasn't even allowed to express myself in my home. Mm -hmm. Um, I was around kids, some of whom were religious, but not necessarily. And I was exposed to literature and to art and to a way of thinking that that really 
formed me as a human. Yeah. I think a lot of us felt that way about the school. Not everybody, but a lot of us did. I certainly did. Uh, how different was it from the other schools that you had been to, apart from like what you were describing about being like in an isolated group, apart from the rest of the school population? Uh, well, it's kind of hard to discern. Yeah, because there's that's cause such a there profound. There was another population. Yeah, that's right? such a profound that difference. How would you? We weren't a part of. Yeah. Um, and and even even racially. That's that's probably the place that's that's the biggest puzzle to me about yeah. that experience, um, and I I think that one will hear a lot of African American people who had private school experiences talking about going home and having one reality and going to school and having another reality. I mean, yeah. my best friend for the entire time I was at Walden was Randy Grossman, yeah. whose life couldn't have been more different right. than mine. But that was my best friend, yeah. hands down. Um, and the person, I think we had one fight in all that time. I don't remember who we were reading we were talking about, or we were talking about South Africa with George, mm -hmm. and she felt that, well, at the time, she felt that apartheid was, was a bad system, but that it would take time, and I felt that she, she should be willing to give her life for my freedom. Right. <laughs> <laughs> And there you have it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't how, I don't know how many of us at Walden or anywhere else were willing to give our lives for anybody's freedom. <laughs> nope. <laughs> and that was a hard lesson to learn. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we thought we were, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there's that. I think. I think a lot of us thought we were. Uh, that's so interesting, because when you grow up to going to the school the way I did, you don't think about anything like that. Kids come and go, and then some kids stay, and then everyone becomes, you know, sort of, you don't exactly think about other people's experiences. And so way. there's a question there. So there we were, Mr. and Mrs. Peachum, right, yeah. in Three Penny Opera. And in 311, what was... What? 311 East 54th Street. That was the other, that was the thing we did when I, I was in ninth grade. Well, oh, that was, was Mrs. Scully's all theatrical Mrs. East Side boarding, boarding house. house. That's right. When you sang Give Me a Pigfoot. When I sang the, Give Me a Pigfoot. Blew the roof off the auditorium. <laughs> that was amazing. I remember that. I tell, I told my daughter all about you because we went, we go down to the New Orleans Jazz Festival all the time and we have this singer that we love named Mashia Lake who sings a lot of Bessie Smith songs and I always tell Nellie about Helga Davis singing that song when she was in 11th grade when I was like, listen, we were all doing a good job. This was different. <laughs> we were all like, that was a good song. You know, he's in 12th grade. She's a pretty good Mr. Peachum. He's fine as Mac the Knife and then, uh, or whatever. This was a different, this was different. But did it mean anything to you that I was black? Well, yeah. I mean, you're in high school and there's like – it's not supposed to mean anything at all. Mm. If you're in the 70s and you're a white liberal kid from the Upper West Side with a you know liberal, progressive, somewhat milk toasty liberal background and 
everyone's really taught everyone's the same. So in a way, it's sort of you're not supposed to notice that there's any difference. So when you find yourself noticing or thinking about there being any difference at all, visually or in any physically or in any other way, you feel like you're ashamed and you shouldn't be noticing anything like that. Mm -hmm. So it's not even a discussion you allow that you're even supposed to be having. And now I think it's possible that it's that I don't know. Having a kid and watching them grow up with no race consciousness whatsoever, like zero, for many, 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 many years, and then watching it kind of seep in and more from their schools they're going to than from almost anywhere else, mm. uh, and through well-meaning, and she goes to a very liberal, progressive, Walden-like school, but I'm not so sure I'm that comfortable with the with the agenda that's being. It's a very you know it's a strict, far to the left, politically correct identity conscious, identity identity political agenda. And I don't know that I like it so much because – and I guess it's impossible to maintain that initial state of not noticing particularly who's who or who – you know, I think it's – I don't know. Anyway, all I know is at Walden it was not so much. I, I always am put in mind about – this is something from the autobiography of Malcolm X where he goes to Africa and he is having a discussion. I think it's with a with a, a black African minister or someone in a, uh, in a, 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 a journalist possibly. And he uses the phrase uh, race uh, – everyone in America is very racially self-conscious. Hmm. This is when he's sort of – he's been to his Mecca pilgrimage mm -hmm. and he's, and he's seen, seen white – Muslims and he's his his entire world recognizes them as his brothers. Yeah, and his entire worldview has changed in mm -hmm. that amazing capacity he had to change his entire worldview, not just once but four times, which most of us have the capacity to change it never. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, and I always remember that phrase that uh, that Americans are so racially self conscious, and I I think I must have grown up in that way too, and I don't think I'm free of it to this day, but. I think in a way, all the white kids at Walden were going on the assumption that we weren't to discuss or notice anything because everyone was supposed to be the same, which isn't the worst approach. But it's not true. It's not true. <laughs> and it's not – it doesn't really take into account the enormous variety of experience that different people have coming from different backgrounds, different ethnicities and different demographics. But it's – it's a leg up from where people were thinking about things 50 years earlier, I would say. And I hope we're further along now even. But uh, What is it that you're noticing about your own, your, your daughter? Well, for instance, this idea of cultural appropriation, I personally I suspect it's uh, not a great concept. I, I mean, my instinct, and I'm willing to be proved wrong if, if 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 I'm if I find that I'm wrong, is that it's uh, crazy. Uh, she had a friend who wore a, a T-shirt with a Chinese characters on it, and uh, an Asian friend accused this kid who was white of appropriating Chinese culture by wearing a T-shirt with Chinese characters on it. Now, to me, that degree of fine tuning and political correctness is absurd and ultimately self-destructive and crazy. Mm -hmm. And all it is to me is this. See what I see. What I see happening, and, I, and these are not fully formed thoughts, even though I've been thinking about them all year, really, and beyond that. But like, um, but especially this last year, I feel there's this this kind of very alarming upswing on on the right end of the spectrum that we all don't like. And what concerns me is that the reaction on the left end of the spectrum is is actually directed 
against itself in some ways. And I'm not the first person to have this concern. But so I think without cultural appropriation, there's no culture, especially in this country. I know what it means, but I, I know that it's misapplied when it's taken to that degree and it becomes meaningless. You can't name an artist of any kind or a writer or any kind of that puts anything out of it in any kind of creative capacity who doesn't appropriate left and right from all kinds of cultures I've influenced. And appropriation is a very particular thing. The obvious and immediate example is all the music companies who got rich off of black music and the all the way up to, you know, recent times. But that's a particular business assault uh, <laughs> that is not it, – you just can't – you could accuse the Rolling Stones and the Beatles of being culturally appropriating black American music, but it's insane because they're heavily influenced by it. They became rich and successful adopting it, appropriating it and making it their own and playing it back to people and it doesn't – that's what a culture is supposed to do. Everyone's supposed to mm -hmm. take it in and put it back out in their own way. And I think ultimately it's a, a beautiful and great thing. So for someone to not be able – supposed to wear a t-shirt with Chinese right. characters on it to me is insane. And, and that type of over-refinement of political correctness, I would call it, I, I see happening uh, across the board on all issues at her school and uh, not just at her school but also you know in my community which is the showbiz community and but it's hard because the issues are real the problems are real the problems are grotesque and monumental and historic and gargantuan and so you don't always want to jump in and say this particular solution is terrible and focus your energies on that on the other hand I do sometimes feel like there's this tremendous energy available to actually make a profound and positive difference and I hate to see it funneled into these this increasingly minute and narrow perfectionism and narrow uh, demands on the language that left-wing people use when speaking to other left-wing people about left-wing issues. It seems very <laughs> insular and, and crazy to me uh -huh. and wasteful. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's anything worse than silly. Ultimately, like after 10 years, I think people will look back and say, I can't believe people were talking like this to each other. Mm-hmm. The same way people look back now and at like Mod Squad and make fun of them for saying groovy and dig it man and like that kind of stuff. <laughs> or the same way you look back at like uh, popular Freudianism in the 30s and 40s, which sounds like gobbledygook now, even though personally I think Freud had a lot of profound and meaningful and lasting ideas. But that when it became a popular idiom and a popular dogma, it lost a lot of its heft. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that this is any worse than that. But on the other hand, we're at a dangerous, we're in very perilous times and one wants one's team to be doing its best and not eating itself alive. Yeah. How, how does this thing come up in what you do, in your films, in your how, – how are you navigating? I don't know the answer to that because I try to think about it in the broadest, most humanistic terms because like, I can only – do good work if I'm thinking in terms of the individuals mm. that I'm inventing. And so if I think in terms of big issues, I'm lost no matter what those big issues may uh. be. But if I think in terms of human beings and try to include as much of the, the threads. The human experience. Yeah. And as, if I try to include as many of the threads that connect these imaginary people to the real world that my imagination has put them in, then a lot of these issues, I hope, come along with with the material, uh, and in what form depends completely on what uh, what I'm writing. 
I don't often write directly, I wouldn't say, about social issues, but you hope that by having your antenna out as much as possible, you're in, the work will exist on a lot of different levels. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly not, I would not consider myself an overtly political writer. Uh, I have a I have a sort of a dread of declarative sentences. I don't know what I think about a lot of things. <laughs> and I don't see my job as to instruct people as so much as to explore mm-hmm. and pick out patterns in life that I may happen to notice. Uh, but you do feel like a, a sense of obligation, like you should be talking about certain things. But most of the time I say that feeling of obligation that what you should be writing about is not a positive influence on the work. Usually you're better off following your instincts about what interests you because what interests you is going to be what you're most been paying the most attention to and are smartest about. And hopefully that'll include some of the bigger issues as well as some of the personal ones. One of the things that I remember so well also was um, and again when I was watching this with Jared, I was just I was so blown away uh, by our – so I'll just say what the thing is and then maybe I can understand what it is I'm trying to say. There's the scene in, in Mrs. Scully's where there's the blackface. Yeah. What the hell were we doing? And it's an interesting thing for two reasons. One, you know, I wasn't born at a time when when African American actors had to wear had to cork up in in order to to work, right? Yeah. So here I am in this school with my friends. Yeah. And I'm 14 years old. Yeah. And two people whom I consider to be friends. Yeah come round a corner in blackface. Yeah. And the shock, the shame, the anger, the... I just couldn't wrap my head around why, why that thing that I had no historical yeah. reference for yeah. or personal historical reference for was so profoundly upsetting. And I remember Matthew kept talking to me and he kept saying, Helga, it's, it's us. It's me. Yeah. And my feeling was, no, it's not. And that we, we did this thing and when I look back at it, I, f- I feel how tremendous the opportunity to really to have another kind of experience with, with my history, with your history, with us as teenagers trying to work things out. Unfortunately, there wasn't any real conversation yeah. around it. I mean, what I was told was that I needed to sort of pull myself together and and keep moving, right. which I I think is unfortunate. Yeah, but that's so. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I've been thinking about that a lot. Because I knew I was coming to do the podcast. That you're being very discreet. I was the other person in blackface besides Matthew. We were playing a blackface comedy duo called Mac and Moran, and you see us a few times rehearsing, and then then there's the vaudeville show, 
the performers all do their act, and our act is in blackface, and it was taken from an actual 1880s, 1890s act. And then also David Johnson, who's a African-American uh, kid, who, because white and uh, black performers put on blackface right. uh, frequently to, for minstrel performances, mm -hmm. etc. Um, I'll... I'll tell you what I thought about it at the time and then what I think about it now because it's very interesting how – because at the time, what I know the the teacher who wrote the show was doing was trying to show vaudeville in every facet, including the horrible racist facet, which is minstrel shows. And my feeling at the time when in 11th grade was that it was so far away from our experience and I remember you got very upset and Matthew and I both noticed you were horribly upset. But this is because you hadn't been prepared for this at all. But I I believe that what happened was our feeling was this is so foreign to our experience today. We're so divorced from this now that you're being oversensitive by bursting into mm -hmm. tears when you see your two buddies dressed up mm -hmm. in blackface. And we didn't even – I don't even know that I ever even saw what I looked like because I probably was embarrassed to even look. They put on the makeup and I got on. I'm not sure that I even recall. You didn't do it yourself? No. I don't uh. think so. Or if I did, I blocked it out. But I think – I don't think – I don't really remember. I remember – and now that I think of it, I have no visual memory of myself in that outfit. Mm. And that may be strictly from vanity because it's not a very – it doesn't make you look – black. it does not make you look handsome no matter who's wearing it. <laughs> you know, I was okay looking. Matthew's very handsome and he didn't look so good. Um, but it's funny. I don't remember that at all. But anyway, what I think is interesting among a lot of it is that – and I also remember that Bruce, the teacher who had co-written the show with the music teacher, Carol – I got very angry and Matthew did too and a bunch of us did because because of the blackface component of the show. And just by the way, the show was not promoting blackface. It was a historical show with a lot of funny and good things in it and a lot of terrible things in it, etc. So if it was saying anything, it was saying this is what was happening 100 mm -hmm. years ago. Um, but the administration of the school – came to a dress rehearsal, probably the dress rehearsal where you got so upset and saw the show and or the first performance of four or three. Anyway, they they asked Bruce, they they made Bruce read a statement before the show saying that we're going to be seeing a historical show and I don't remember the exact nature, but to kind of warn the audience that they were going to be seeing some racist, horrible things, not in so many words. But I think the phrase, and I remember this because his voice really cracked when he said it. He said, I mean, it really cracked like a whip when he said, he said, we are showing these things not because it's pretty, but because that's the way it was. Hmm. And we all thought, I remember being very 11th grade indignant, like we shouldn't have to say this. It should be self-evident. This is crazy. This is just cowardice. This is just, there were, the wow. phrase didn't exist then, but I thought this is just politically correct. Car like chicken shit like we're just we're just covering our bases and apologizing for the show before the show even comes on so no one gets offended all of which is true but now looking back on it I think well of course Helga was horrified and mortified and upset and heartbroken to see this grotesque living caricature in front of her two feet away from her backstage and also and for you to say that you were then just encouraged to get on with it, that's because 
which is another component which I don't think people take into account very often, is this was, this was the show we'd all been working on for a month. It was opening night or it was going to be opening right. night. And yeah, whatever's upsetting people, you have to, like the little mundane daily pressure of life is enormous. And people should never forget that. Uh, so I couldn't agree with you more that there should have been some real discussion about it and said, look, we wanted to do a show about American popular culture 100 years ago and show how absolutely horrible it was in some respects and how fun it was in other respects. And that's the point of view of the show. And these two guys are going to be dressed up in blackface and it's really shocking. But I want you to know that we're doing it for what we hope is a good reason. It's an educational project for the most part. And mm -hmm. it's also – and. Uh, so forth and so on and have an actual discussion about it. I can't imagine a show like that happening now, but I also can't imagine a show happening now like that happening now, even with a discussion about it and even with everybody right. involved thinking it was okay, which is why I feel in a way, and I don't know if that's because our hearts are purer now or because they're more cowed, <laughs> and I suspect it's the latter. <laughs> um I actually, looking back on it now, it's hard to believe there was no discussion about that and that particularly the African-American kids were thrown into that show without like being talked through this. At the same time, in a way that's both unforgivably innocent and naive and a way that I also somewhat is in some way to me the way it's supposed to be, we literally thought this just doesn't connect to the life we are leading today and right. therefore there's no reason anybody should get upset about it, which is not true. It's an ideal that hadn't even remotely been achieved and hasn't yet, but that was where we were sitting in, in our point of view about it. You know, we understood, but we were also faintly annoyed because we were trying, we had to go out and do our show, which right. to us was important. So we didn't want some girl backstage weeping onto the floor and we were, I think, kind of callous about it because we were all kids and we were like, why is that kid crying when I have to go out and do my act <laughs> on that, on that yeah. real basic level? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it also reminds me of how emotional it was, the scene with David Johnson, who's the African-American student, at the end of the performance when I wipe the cork from his face. Yeah. And we would cry every time yeah it's 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 interesting to think of though i mean how i'm thinking you know the the kind of lack of empathy that you can have for other people even when you're in an environment that's telling you to have all the empathy you can muster is kind of amazing. Yeah. And it's not, and I, and it's, it's also, I think, a part of it is the function of the, of, of a situation that should be seen on a very human level being raised or lowered to the level of a dogma or an orthodoxy. And I'm thinking of this because I'm thinking about my daughter's school and I'm thinking about just a lot of the, these really, human issues becoming dehumanized so quickly. It's like they're almost like they're being oxidized, like there's some kind of metal that's been buried and, and the minute they're brought out into the open and the, and the metal is there, the, there's the goal and then suddenly it's oxidized and it changes color and it's like something 
that's more brittle and less human and more and I don't I'm I'm, I'm wrecking my own not great metaphor but but you know what I mean it's I like I, it's so it it happened so fast yeah and I think I would say that we were our lack of empathy was probably partly in response to the to our attributing your emotion to a sort of political orthodoxy that we thought was a little silly mm. as opposed to the fact that it was a real person having a real reaction mm-hmm. which is what the political orthodoxy should be serving and it's supposed to be and what we're all supposed to be paying attention to, I think. Yeah. Does that make sense? Of course. Of course. Um, and, and now it feels incredibly callous that, that there wasn't some discussion about it, although I, I don't like that the fact that such a show would be impossible now because I don't think it was such a bad idea to put I, on that show. I agree with you completely. And, and I feel that... In part, what makes me sad in this moment is this lack of nuance that we're so not able to have complex, to hold complex feelings, to articulate complex thoughts that in the end would lead us someplace very, very different than, than just on two sides. As if only two sides exist. There are as many sides as there are people in a discussion. I know, and it's funny because you read when you. I mean, I've been reading a lot of articles about you know Me Too and Times Up and the sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, sexual abuse issues that have been going cascading through Hollywood and all over the country. And in fact, there is a lot of nuance in people's thinking. You know, you read many articles with no nuance and no thought, but many, many people have a lot to say about it that's very thoughtful and haven't their views haven't calcified or coagulated yet. It seems like it's one short step to people being able to uh, – I hope my daughter doesn't hear this podcast because she'll kill me. But, but she, I, she's having – there's a workshop today about – In her school? Much, in her school. And how old much, is she? She's 15. Okay. Pretty much covering – any kind of hot button left wing liberal progressive topic you could think of, you know, all day long they're doing workshops. And I, and her feeling about it was, I can't speak up because if you don't say the right thing, they eat you alive. Now, to me, that is not. It's all wrong. That is very wrong because even if she said something that was that was, you know, she's fifteen. How racist is she going to be? You know, maybe very. I hope not. I don't think so. I don't think so at all. She's a liberal left wing Greenwich Village Soho. Progressive school <laughs> kid. I mean, it's just not. That's just not who she is, and or how she was brought up. Um, but you know, I don't have a politically correct, orthodox view about any of these issues. And she's my daughter, so she. Nor do I. I know, but for her to not feel comfortable, but I know exactly what she's talking about because I, I, I'm not on Twitter, but I read Twitter, and I know what happens to people who don't say the exact right thing, and. It just makes you not want to participate. Already as if there were an exact right thing. Yeah. Which is... And then I read other people who... Other article, other writers and thinkers and ordinary people who are expressing their views and they're very nuanced and complicated and, and let's kind of feel our way through this. And I, you know, and so I... It doesn't seem like it would be that far of a stretch for people to start allowing other people to disagree with them. That seems to be all that it would take. <laughs> And, and the ability to to be uncomfortable, like this is this is also a thing that we're just we're not 
trying to be uncomfortable huh. ever. Yeah, I, I I always feel uncomfortable though. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm I'm trying. I'm trying to be more comfortable. Okay. All right. I take that back. <laughs> But I, I, I mean, I definitely feel that, you know, we just don't want to be uncomfortable. And, th- and there's an idea that uh, if you have this thing or that thing and this phone or that, that there's, there's a level of comfort. So I remember when Philando Castile was killed. I was so sad. And I, I don't know why his murder affected me in the way that it it did, but okay, it did. And I was having one of those moments when I was like, what is happening to our country? And where am I safe? And where are my nephews safe? Where are my neighbors safe? Having a whole thing. And I go into, um, I think it was Adina and DeLuca, And I hear these two women in front of me having a conversation about a party they'd been to that weekend and how horrible the party was and how the guys weren't that cute. And there's this whole thing happening. And I felt in that moment that as citizens, everyone should have been as upset as I was. And in fact, what is true and what is always true, like you said, the show must go on. And nope, it did not matter one iota to these two women that this thing, this incredibly violent thing had happened and resulted in the death of this African-American man. And it, it made, I don't even know that they knew that it happened. And so... In that moment, I feel that part of my work is to have my feelings of horror and rage and sadness and to also hold space for the people for whom this makes absolutely no difference whatsoever. And to find in that a place where I don't have to be rude to them, I don't have to... And I have to act out my disappointment and my sadness and my rage on them. Well, I think I think though that you could. I think that's maybe that's an awfully of, lofty. No, it's a lot. Of, no, I, I don't think. There's, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think that there's nothing wrong with bringing people's attention to things that they're not aware of mm-hmm. and not being too hard on them for not necessarily being aware of the things that that you're aware of. You get to the point where people who don't seem to think there's anything wrong with the world really seem like you want to shake them and wake them up. Nobody thinks that. But people who think – I think that there's – I don't know. I, I also – you hope that when you can bring people's attention to things they don't know about, that they'll notice them and pay attention that they will care about them and they don't always. So I, I, I know what you're saying but it's – yeah, it's that's a funny phenomenon when you're very worked up about something, rightly so, and then nobody else is in the room is like, no can't one. believe they're not talking about it. But even the fact that I'm standing in a Dean and DeLuca about to have my $10 coffee and muffin is already 
Yeah, I'm, it's already something. Yeah, but that's where I got. You got. I okay. mean, people can go Tell to Dean and DeLuca if they want to. Yeah, I, mean, I was there. You were there. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I don't. I just think people are so hard on each other. Sometimes you know they're so hard on each other. Okay. And they're so say it unforgiving of and mostly of foibles that they're guilty of themselves. As long as you're pointed in the right direction, which is. You know, it's why, like, self-righteousness, like you don't have, always sounds so unpleasant mm -hmm. because you know somewhere they're doing the same thing somewhere else. I went to a, a debate once during the Iraqi war with Christopher Hitchens, and I can't remember. It was a radio host of a station on WBAI. And, uh, it was was about, it Amy Goodman? No, it was a, it was a man. It was a uh, African-American guy who was in his 50s, I'd say. He was a big guy. I don't know the name of, of, the, of, okay. of, of the programmer. It was an interesting experience because I was, it was in the East Village and without agreeing with everything Christopher Hitchens always said, I was a great admirer of his and you have to admire his intellect and his what he knows about everything that he talked about. And whatever else happened at this debate he clearly was way better informed, way more articulate, way more uh, cogent in his arguments, et cetera, than his opponent who was not respecting the rules of the debate, was repeating himself. He invited Hitchens, said, come on my program and I'll debate you five times and then kept saying he's afraid to come on the program. At some point, Hitchens said, I've said yes five times. And the audience couldn't have cared less who was making good points or bad points mm. and was vitriolic and rabid in its hatred for Hitchens oh. just because he was supporting the, the war for any reason and didn't care what he had to say whatsoever. And it was really interesting because I felt like I felt like I was at a creationist rally <laughs> in reverse because there no point could be made in opposition to the uh, a priori conviction of the audience that would make the slightest impact and it was fright it was kind of alarming yeah um, and at some point there were two women sitting next to me and at some point one, Hitchens said something about something mentioned the word army and the woman said yeah we should all join the army and I from the Upper West I'm on, I'm grew up on West 92nd Street uh -huh. in Central Park West <laughs> With psychoanalyst parents, and I turned to them and I said, "Do you wish we didn't have an army?" Right. I said, "I don't like what our army does all the time. I'm actually glad we have an army because other countries have armies too. Do you wish we didn't have an army?" I said, mm -hmm. and I don't remember what she said because I was only admiring myself. She said, "Fuck you." That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably. Um, I know exactly what she said. <laughs> so, but I was, I was really, I really, again, I wanted my team to put on a better show. Yeah. You know, I wanted there to be more reason, more listening, more uh, more argument, more more facts, more everything and not and less uh, less ideology, dogma and and just willful deafness. Uh, so I don't think that I I I think anybody who gets mad at someone for going to Dean and DeLuca is crazy. Yeah. How about that? There's a lot more to get there are many other things to get angry about mm -hmm. and better things and more productive things. And I think it's just a it's just not a useful target for anyone's ire. Both your parents were psychoanalysts? My my father was not a psychoanalyst. He was a uh, regular physician and a hospital administrator and a medical researcher. My stepfather and mother, my stepfather's still a psychoanalyst. My mother's retired Jesus. from being a psychoanalyst.
Kenny. <laughs> it's, an honorable, it's an honorable profession. <laughs> What's that? Can can you do you do you get to just be a regular sure. person sure. with psychoanalyst yeah, parents? They, they don't yeah, practice at home. Yeah, they do. Not any more than anybody else does. No, they don't. Not really. I mean, I asked. You know, at some point when I was younger, I don't know, high school or later, I, I finally asked my stepfather the question many people had already asked me, which is, I said, do you ever, do you ever like psychoanalyze us? And he said, no, hmm. you don't talk to me the way my patients do. I mean, I, I knew that he noticed things about us and we noticed things about each other, you know, as any intuitive person with insights about human behavior would notice about her loved ones. But he said, you know, my patients talk to me nonstop for 40 minutes, twice a week, once a week, four times a week. You guys don't do that. I know my patients much better than I know anybody else. Hmm. No one else sits down for that much time and talks. But uh, so it's just not the same thing. It's a more, it's more technical. It's a, it's, it's treatment. He's not treating us. You know, he doesn't know enough about our inner lives. If I tell my shrink a dream that I had after several years, my shrink's going to know enough about me to maybe make some associations from the dream that have some relevance to the specificity of my life. But my stepfather doesn't know anything about our inner lives beyond what any parent would know. So Mm -hmm. he can have insights that may be a little more, you know, a little sharper than than somebody else's. But you'd be foolish to do that with your children, I think, if he's not foolish. Okay, I want to read you something, but you have to close your eyes because I don't, I don't want you to see. Okay. And don't peek. I won't peek. Can I avert my eyes? Does it, is, does it bother you to close your eyes? I've, All right. I you can feel infantile for some strange reason. Okay, well, I'm, I wasn't trying to make... I definitely no, no, you're don't not, want... You're not making, let me be clear. You're not making me feel infantile. Okay. All right. I just have to pull it up. Act one, scene one, time, the present, place. At the moment, the Filbert home for the mentally unbalanced, specifically the rooms and hall at the right side of the stage. The lights rise only on this area. In the nurse's station at the downstage end of the hall, nurse Tyler sits at her desk, filling up syringes from a bottle of nasty-looking fluid. Tyler is very simply an enormous woman in a nurse's uniform. In the ward room at the upstage end of the hallway, Paul Rennings sits on one of the cots examining a deck of cards. Rennings is 22 or so, a troubled young man with longish hair. He is dressed in an inmate's uniform, green pajamas and black slippers, making his way down the hall, heading towards the nurse's station with the determination of a heat-seeking thermonuclear device is Francis Parkinson. Parkinson is 40 at most. He might be younger, but he doesn't look it. He is a wild man. He is extremely skinny. His hair is brown and wild, flying off in several different directions. He wears a ragged brown beard and as unkempt and untamed as his hair. Like Rennings, he wears inmates' greens. His feet are unshod. He pads down the hall to the office. He stands in the doorway. Tyler continues filling the syringes. Wow. Where did you get that? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Take a look at it. That's wild. (laughs) Wow. Oh, this one. Okay. (laughs) I forgot about this. (laughs) Wow. 
<laughs> I, might, I think I probably have a copy of this somewhere. If you don't, let me know, and I'll I make will. sure you get one. Uh, oh, God. Well, I better get one just in case because I'll have to look pretty hard. Okay. This is I'll a, make sure you get it. I have to return that one. Where did you get this from, Craig Dreyer? So I went to Liam Side's Holy wedding. Holy shit. <laughs> At Liam Side's wedding was Nikki Reiner. Nikki Reiner? Yeah. Teddy okay. Reiner was in my class. Yeah, yeah. And, and Nikki Reiner is Teddy's brother. So Nikki knew that I had a podcast, and I told him that you were one of the people I would love to speak with. And he said, I have something that I think might interest you. Wow. And so I met him, and he gave me that. Wow. <laughs> so this is a play that you wrote called Parkinson Unbound, a play in two acts. And what's so beautiful about it, first of all, who typed this? Me. You typed this? Oh, yeah. I loved, I loved typing. I miss my typewriter. I loved typing from when I was in sixth grade. Yeah, I typed that. <laughs> Why are you so shocked? I, because, because, well, because it's long. <laughs> oh, I typed a lot more than that. Because... So is this, is this the way? If that's not a Xerox, that's from my. It's not a Xerox. That's from. I don't know why he has an original, the original copy, but that's from my type. That's mine. Look at that. Doesn't look like a Xerox, right? Uh, Well, you can tell from the back. It is a Xerox. It is a Xerox. Yeah, because there's no, there's no uh, indentation on the other side. How about that? You could tell that. I wouldn't have even guessed that. Bit. Maybe you should tell your younger listeners what a Xerox is. <laughs> this play, it's it's really good. Is it? Yeah. I don't remember it being so great. It's, and it's funny. Um. So you were you were writing these things. What what did you think you were going to do with them? I wanted to be a playwright. You did okay. The interesting thing about that play is that I wrote that after I graduated from Walden High School. I had written a play in Walden. I was confused for a minute because I didn't remember who Nurse Tyler was. I vaguely remembered the Filbert, the name Filbert, <laughs> the Filbert <laughs> Mental Institution. And once you said Paul Rennings, I knew what it was. But I wrote a one act in tenth or eleventh grade called The Rennings Children which had a character in it named Parkinson, who I really liked. And then I wrote two more one-acts starring Parkinson. One was called Parkinson Unbound and one was called Parkinson the Conqueror. And then after I graduated from high school, I was still friends with a lot of the kids there, including Craig Dreyer, who had sort of become the star mover in the in the theater program after my class and, and your class. Were you, were you there when they did this play or you had graduated? This play? Yeah. No. Because you would graduate. So this is a couple of years after because you were two years behind. Two, yeah. Two years behind me in high school and Craig was one year behind you. And anyway, but I was still friends with Craig and Claude Seaman who was in, well, very close friends with him. And um, somehow or other, I wrote a play for them to do at the school. Huh. Craig directed, I think, and starred in it. And I think I consulted a little bit, but I made that play out of a bunch of other plays. I don't know if I wrote it for him, but anyway, I, it was an unusual thing. I did two plays with the school after I graduated. Okay. And uh, that was one of them. 
I never thought it worked that well as a full-length play, but you're nice to say you liked it. <laughs> well, first of all, it's completely fun to read something that you wrote such a long time ago. Yeah. And then the New Yorkness of reading it on the subway. Yeah. <laughs> <Your> Xerox copy. <laughs> Xerox copy on the subway. And and just kind of having seen uh, your films to to see your brain at work yeah. at however old you were when you when you did this. Um, Probably 20, 19 or 20, hmm. I guess. Maybe 21. That's so funny. The stage directions sound really good. Don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I was reading it, I was like, oh, I'm going to find some monologue and I'm going to read this monologue. It's like, no, yeah. the stage directions yeah, are dope. Because, yeah. <laughs> Start right there. <laughs> yeah. The quality may drop off very sharply when the dialogue starts. <laughs> however, however, we were off to a really good start. Yeah. Do, you, do you have a... What's your writing thing? Do you wake up and you make time to do it? Do you you schedule out? Uh, do you plan it the way you plan? You would plan everything in your day. And part of why I'm asking you this is that one of the the, the question that I ask everyone to talk about something that they do every day. That um, so there are actually two questions. So first, I'm asking you about your writing practice, if you have one, and then I'll ask you the other question. Well, right now I can't say I have a writing practice because I'm I'm trying to figure out what to do next. I have a number of things that I want to do, and I'm not sure which one's really going to take off. So I would say I'm in a ruminative stage at the moment. So I'm reading a lot, and I'm thinking a lot, and I'm taking notes, but I'm not actually writing anything. When I am writing something, it's usually not necessary to create a schedule because it's it's what I mostly want to do. Mm-hmm. So I'll get up and I'll have some coffee and maybe a little breakfast and then I'll start working. When I get stuck, it then goes into where I am now, which is doing everything but writing. So I've never had a routine. I okay. used to, uh, When I was younger, I used to write in, in the daytime and in the night. I stopped writing at night probably around the time our daughter was born, um, or somewhere later in life anyway, and I very rarely would write at night, and I very rarely write at night now, so I don't have a routine, unfortunately. I think if I did, I might be better off. Um, but I never want, needed one because I always liked doing it so much. Yeah. Now I feel like I might need one to get me back in the saddle, so to speak. And what's a thing, if there is a thing, that you do every day that every person could do that leads you and that could lead another person towards their creative self, which I think is, is so necessary and important for, for us humans. Um, well, I guess I, it's more that I, what, what I try to do, I guess I could say, I try to read something every day, Mm. uh, if I'm not reading something, I, I'm looking for something to read and it could be anything because I'm not actually writing a lot at the moment. I'm reading a lot. Um, Do Twitter feeds and Facebook and those things count as no, reading? I, no. I, I, well, no, I don't, I'm not on Twitter and, or Facebook. I'm not okay. on any social media except for e- emails and text messages and I, I actually find that to be 
more akin to watching television, which is not always bad, but but is more often than not a distraction. And a, I don't feel great about myself when I spent an hour playing with my phone, no matter what it, what I think I'm doing with it. Uh, and I find it. I have a kind of a compulsive. I share with a lot of people a kind of compulsive feeling of got to check my phone. What's happening? Send a message. You don't really need to send. Check your email when you could check it in an hour just as well. So I actually f- don't count that. Uh, I mean, reading a book or a mm-hmm. magazine or something. And I, but I will count reading something online. It doesn't matter if it's on paper yeah, yeah, yeah. or electronic. But uh, I try to do that every day. I try to do a lot of things every day. I, that, that I actually manage to do every day. What's one other thing that you would like to do other, every day that you don't necessarily get to, but uh, that you think is still a, a good thing? Well, two things are that I would, I would say. Listen to music, which I've been doing more. I used to listen to a lot of music. I'm, I'm, I've been left behind in some ways by the technological advances of the last few years. So I'm not really up to snuff on my music listening the way I was when it was records and CDs. But I've started to catch up again. And I've been listening to music a lot, which I've missed quite a bit. And then I getting outdoors is really important. Mm-hmm. I, I find the city to be more and more oppressive. So I would ideally like to get outdoors in the country and see some nature every day. That actually I, f- I find to be enormously stimulating and, and relaxing at the same time. Anything you want to ask me? Um, what's next for you? Mm, there's a question. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you performing? Are you singing? I am a whole lot. That's so great. A whole, 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 whole lot. Well, what's your next singing gig? And um, I'm going to head to Fairfield, Connecticut. I'm in this production of Toshi Regan's that is the a stage adaptation of Octavia E. Butler's The Parable of the Sower. That's great. I don't know either the adaptation or the original. Ooh. Ooh. There could be a gift coming in. Yeah, way. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's beautiful to, you know, to say I'm a singer. I didn't say that in high school, mostly because my mother said that she was not going to pay for me to go to college to learn to sing and dance for white people. Hmm. And that was the end of that conversation. And so that whole part of myself uh, got really smashed and and neglected. Yeah, that's such a shame. Well, if you think about it from her of position, course. right? So here's a-, a woman who's born in 1928, who was married and had her first child at 16, who came to this country with five children, whose husband left her and who just didn't have a high school diploma, who put herself through school, who became a nurse, who worked on her feet in an emergency room for 25 years. Hell no. (laughs) My child is not singing and dancing. And I think also that like that was for other people. I don't know who those people were, but it wasn't a thing that had value to her. Right. It wasn't a thing, one, that, that you could make a living at, but I think there is some kind of shame in it also that because it, it she did say it exactly that just way. Just like that, yeah. Um, but, that's so, but that's so interesting just in what we were talking about before because you can, you can see so completely what that point of view is and how it's very hard to argue with and on the other hand, how it's completely wrong when it's applied to an individual such as yourself and how 
crushing and sapping of joy that could be for you. But that's okay. With, I'm here now. No, I know. No, no. It. I mean, you, here you are. But I mean, but just, yes. But it's it's really. Inter- I mean, it's. And don't think I don't feel that way sometimes. But it's because I do. I know, but I, no, I don't mean forever. I mm-hmm. mean at the time. I mean clearly, here you are, and, <laughs> and you have, and you understand where she's coming from, which I'm sure is a big help. But it's so. It's just. Uh, I I was never put in that position. My parents were always not even. They're always totally supportive, and there was no racial issue, of course, on my end because I'm a white kid from the Upper West Side. But there was no that kind of support is really it's nice to have. But they didn't have that context, of course. Um, that's wonderful, though, because you're such an inordinately talented singer. <laughs> <laughs> I I it's really nice to see you now and. I hope that every time I see you, we can hug like that. And whatever it is rooted in, it's a really, really good thing. And I, I'm i so glad to have it. And thank you Me for too, coming. Me too, Thank you. This is really great. Thank really you really wonderful. so much. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's great when life gives you an opportunity to revisit something and just come full circle with it. That was my conversation with Kenneth Lonergan here on Helga. You can always email me at helga at newsounds.org. You can find uh, episodes from season one on iTunes or at newsounds.org. Or you can connect with me on Facebook. This is Helga. This episode of Helga was edited by Jessica Griggs with support from Aaron Dalton and original music by Alex Overington. New Sounds senior producer is Alex Ambrose. To learn more about New Sounds and to discover hand-picked genre of free music 24-7, visit our new website at newsounds.org.